Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. If you have mothered young children in America, especially in the last 30 or so years, you will likely relate to how deeply weird and often toxic our culture has become towards mothers. No matter what they do, people are on hand to tell mothers they aren't doing it right. Kind of in contrast to fathers. Um, And the anxious ones are already predisposed to fearing they're doing it wrong. Jessamine Chan's debut novel, The School for Good Mothers, goes straight to the heart of this topic in some really cringy ways. Set in the not-too-distant future, it's dystopian, but it's not all that far-fetched. It is out in paperback on February 7th. In addition to chatting about her idea and inspirations for the book, we'll talk about making the mental leap from short stories to novels, how Jessamine taught herself to plot, overwriting and knowing what to cut, finding an agent, selling the novel, applying for MFAs, grants, workshops, all those things that support writers, and so much more. Jessamine's stories have appeared in Tin House and Epic. A former review editor at Publishers Weekly, she holds an MFA from Columbia and lives in Chicago. Before I bring her on, it's your weekly friendly reminder to check out our Patreon page. After over two decades and a thousand episodes of this show, we left the radio station and started the page to get more hands-on and direct contact with our listeners. Hopefully the show has boosted your writing in some way and given you some useful advice over the years. If so, look for us there. Get a few perks for your membership. You can see all the benefits by visiting patreon.com slash writers on writing. Any level of support helps us out and we appreciate it. On with the show. Jessima, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So I suspect you're one of those writers who we talk about as an overnight success, but it took, you know, sort of 20 years in the making (laughs) to do that. And so I thought maybe we could just start by you talking about your writing career leading up to this book and what life looked like before this book came out writing wise, because I know I know you've been at it for a really long time. You know, I just did an event with Bonnie Garmus, the uh, the author of Lessons in Chemistry, um, in the fall, and I think she's in her early sixties. And she was she was scolding me, saying she's like, "You cannot talk about being an older debut author." And she's like, "I win." <laughs> so, so I'm I'm bearing in mind there are much more uh, dramatic stories out there. But my my story is that I I am very happy for it to look like my book was an overnight success, and certainly that's a dream in so many ways. But but I will say the overnight part doesn't really show the the over two decades of learning and growing and making mistakes and accumulating smaller successes along the way that that went into a first book. So, so I'm 44 and my book came out when I was 43 and I sold it two years before that. So, so I didn't even have an agent, I think, until I was 41. And I've been writing since I was 18. I started when I was a freshman at Brown University, kind of on a whim. At that time, it was, I think, 
this was a time in like 1996 when we registered for courses on index cards. I was just telling someone about that today and she was saying she's a geriatric millennial and I was saying, I win, I'm late Gen X. Like we, we registered <laughs> on index cards on paper at the registrar's office. So at that time, I turned in my, my lottery card to try to get into beginning fiction. And the idea there was that I wanted to become a book editor one day. I didn't even dare to dream of being the primary author of anything. It, it didn't seem possible. It didn't seem like a way to exist in the world. I mean, at that time, it feels like there was Amy Tan and that was about it in terms of seeing anyone who looked like me on pursuing that path. But I, I loved books. I loved reading. I wanted a job where I could read all day. So I thought, okay, one day I'm going to become a book editor and I'll be a, a more skilled book editor if I try writing fiction myself. So, so I got into that class and that class just really changed my whole life and like changed the whole trajectory of my life. And I, I think without that beginning workshop, which was with a professor named Jane Unruh, um, who I did send a copy of my book to about a year ago. So that I, I hope it, it reached her. Without that class, I'm not sure that I would have started writing fiction at all. So so for the people um, out there who are listening, who are teachers, like you you really can change someone's life with with what you do in the classroom. So it sounds like you grew up probably a big reader, if that was what you were planning on going into, which, you know, we talk about on the show a lot as kind of the best education for becoming a writer. But but it sounds like your door into this was was really through reading books. Yes, my door into it was definitely through reading. Um, it never it just never occurred to me in high school to try writing poetry or short stories. I mean, in high school, it's a little embarrassing to say this publicly, but I was a musical theater kid. So <laughs> so I think there there was some element of wanting attention and wanting to escape into another reality. But I just, I simply was not very talented in that regard. Like I wasn't really a natural dancer. Um, there were no parts for Asian actresses. So that seemed really uh, not like it was a great idea. And honestly, the, it was kind of the best way to get my parents to support me being an English and creative writing major, because before that I had wanted to go to theater school. So when I became an English major, they thought like, oh, that's so stable compared to wanting to become an actress. So I, I tell all my friends, kids that like, if you start out wanting to become an actress, you can do anything after that, because then your parents will think it's like got so many options. So I have several years on you, and I still cannot mentally make this leap from short stories to novels. Novels just feel so hard, you know, that the forest from the trees feels so big. So talk to me a little bit about, because I know you wrote short fiction for a very long time, and kind of overcoming that intimidation and getting over that, just the, the scope of the short story versus the novel is so very different. So tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of making that mental jump. Sure. I, I will say having published a novel, I still find the transition from stories to novel really hard. And I, I mean, it certainly it feels very, very daunting to think about writing another one. I think short stories just always like they, they just, I think, suit my brain and how I like to work. Like I, I really like to think about things on the sentence level, which certainly is a lot more possible with a short story or prose poetry or something than, than with a novel where you're, if you're thinking on the sentence level, it's going to make things go really, really slow, which is uh, certainly my experience. And in terms of the making the mental leap, I guess I wish I had more of an ego about it. Like, I, I wish I could sit down and think today I'm starting a novel. Here are my five ideas for my next novel, like that kind of thinking. 
like I, I guess I always feel very small. Like I'm, it very much feels like I'm pushing a boulder up a, this, this endless mountain <laughs> in terms of <laughs> my writing. And I think with short stories, it feels like I can just put one sentence in front of the other and just see how it goes. And I'm not thinking about the the overall structure or having a huge cast of characters. I mean, certainly I this is not the novel I would have imagined myself writing and when I was in my 20s or even my early 30s. Like it wouldn't have felt possible. Like I've all my previous short stories are about couples in various throes of distress. And it it would have never occurred to me to think like I I wrote this book with so many characters that my my editor actually had me cut many characters because we just had too many moms in mm-hmm. in the version that I sold and and I had to keep track of like all these different timelines and even just figuring out like okay like this is this is the where we are in the plot this is what's happening with the characters emotionally I mean those were questions that I I didn't really think about when I was writing a story because most of the stories I wrote were about two characters over a very finite amount of time. So I I mean, certainly I want to write more short stories and I love reading them. It's one of those things where I wish more people could get behind short stories and short story collections because there's there's just um, so many treasures out there. Yeah, so this is interesting. Well, let's let's set up the novel a little bit. If people haven't yet read it, I definitely want them to understand what we're talking about. So maybe um, you can take us into this and into Frida's world a little bit, so we understand kind of the the scope of what we're dealing with. I tried to introduce it, but I did a terrible job. So I'll let you do that. So the the School for Good Mothers is about a Chinese American single mom named Frida Liu who loses custody of her toddler daughter Harriet after having one very bad day. And in order to get Harriet back, she has to spend a year at a newly created government institution where she's re-educated with about 200 other mothers from around the county whose transgressions range from benign to horrific. So I think of readers as following not just Frida's journey to win her daughter back, but also her journey to hold on to her integrity while being indoctrinated. Ooh, that's a good elevator pitch. My my elevator pitch is, is actually uh, it's like so if if I was to just tell anyone in the street about the book I I've been um, saying that it's like 1984 but for moms. Yes. So I have heard that while Frida had a very bad day, you had a very good day, which is when this book was sort of born. Like you had a kind of this burst of inspiration when a lot of these ideas kind of came to you in a sort of lightning flash moment that I think every writer dreams about that happening to them. But talk a little bit about how much of the story came to you kind of fully fleshed out and if that original kernel bears some resemblance to how it turned out in the end. You know, I will I will just add the caveat here that this has only this burst of inspiration has only happened to me once. And I was also <laughs> writing fiction for about 20 years leading up to this burst of inspiration. So I certainly hope it happens again. But I just want to say inspiration for books comes in lots of different forms and it doesn't have to um, happen like this. So this was a very rare occurrence in my writing life because you because I at that point I was um, I was working working full time at Publishers Weekly and I would gotten rejected from McDowell and Yotto for, say, the 12th time or something. And I, I had two weeks that I wanted to take as a writing residency and I didn't get into the established places. So I asked a very kind friend of mine who had a house in upstate New York if I could just go to her house for two weeks. So I took all my vacation days and I went to her house. And I mean, it was 
very, very isolated, like no cell phone reception snowed in. Um, I remember at some point I binge watched the first season of Top of the Lake, which I I feel like fed into the writing of this book in some spooky way, but I'm, I'm not sure if there's a direct line. But I, I was basically having like one fruitless writing day after another where I just wrote for hours and hours and it just wasn't going anywhere. Like I just coming up with this enormous pile of terrible ideas. I mean, some of my story ideas are just really, really bad. So so just coming up with this endless pile of bad ideas. And then near the end of that two weeks, I had a really eureka kind of writing day, like the kind of day you dream of having where you're just lost in the the creation and you're lost in the feeling and the ideas and you're losing track of time, forgetting to eat. And I think I wrote for about six hours that day. And I think the thing that surprises me now, so many years later, is that that day was in February 2014. And I'm, I guess I'm surprised with the finished book that a lot of the original ideas from that day did make it into the finished book. Like, I I had Frida and Harriet's basically whole story from start to finish. I mean, the what I was writing was almost like a blueprint for what the novel would become. But at the time, it was basically just a pile of ideas. I think the thing that allowed me to turn it into a bigger project was what was very distinct from that day's writing was the voice, the sort of detached, cold clinical voice was there from the from the very beginning. And some of the things that fed into that day's writing was that a couple months prior to that day, I'd read a New Yorker article by the journalist Rachel Aviv called Where Is Your Mother? And that's about a single mom who left her toddler son at home for a stretch of time. The neighbors called the police. And after that day, she never got him back. And I didn't sit down after reading that article and think, okay, now I'm going to envision a, a fictional project that that uses this as inspiration. It was more like the story and that mother's anguish and the tragedy of that situation just really lodged in my mind and lodged in my heart. And I, I just felt so much rage on that mother's behalf. It felt like she was trying so hard to earn back the the right to be with her son, but could never could never meet the the government standards. And I think it it just felt like after reading that story, I, re- I really felt like, why isn't this on the front page of every paper, the fact that the government can just take your ch- children away? And after I started reading more about this issue, I think I-, I am again surprised that this is not on the front page of the paper constantly because thousands of children are removed from their parents' homes every year and parents are locked into this bureaucratic nightmare. And I, I guess I'm surprised given the prevalence of the the tragedy of government separation, that it's it's not more of um and treated as an urgent issue. So that is my long-winded way of saying that the Rachel Aviv article definitely led me down a rabbit hole of of other research. But the other thing that was happening in my life at that time was I was entering my mid-30s and my partner and I were were wrestling with the question of whether or not to have a child. And I felt that as this really intense time pressure because I I didn't have a first book done. We weren't in a place of financial stability. We were living in Brooklyn where having a kid feels kind of impossible in a lot of different ways. And it just felt like the, the, the hardest decision of my life. I mean, I am so glad that we decided to have a baby. I love my daughter so much, but as a two artist couple, it felt like a, a really, really hard leap to make. And for my husband, who's, is, um, 
much more well-versed in the state of climate change than I am. I mean, he was bringing up questions like the melting of Greenland and is there even going to be an earth left when our child is an adult and big questions like that. So I was already ruminating a lot on the question of motherhood. And I think those anxieties and fears combined with the story that I had remembered reading from years before is um, what resulted in me creating the world of the school that day. So that day's writing included Frieda and Harriet's whole journey, the, the Tucker subplot, Gust and Susanna, the dolls, the women in pink lab coats. So it, it's remarkable to look back on that early draft and, and see what became of it in the, in the years to follow. Wow. I mean, there is so much of it as you're describing that, so many plot points. And did you know the end at that point? I knew a version of the end. I will say that I, the way I approached, right, I, I, I hope I'm not jumping too far ahead in, in what you were planning to ask, but yeah. one of the ways that I dealt with the leap of going from short stories to a novel is that I ended up writing the whole first draft of the novel longhand, which is um, when I've said this um, in interviews or events, people tend to gasp because it sounds like the craziest thing to do. And it is, I will say, the slowest way of working. But I think I had to just keep moving forward because I have been an editor all my life in terms of my professional life. And so I like cutting things. And I knew that if I was working on screen, I would just delete as I went and it would never grow. So I ended up writing really all the potential storylines. So each scene was written like 20 times with reams of dialogue. I mean, I didn't understand that 18 month old children barely talk. So, so Frida and Harriet had lots of scenes of dialogue together in the early draft because I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I was writing every version of every crazy idea I had. And I knew that I would eventually clean it up at the end, but I knew if I didn't write all the way to the last scene that I, I would just be spinning my wheels on chapter one forever. So that, that was my way of dealing with my perfectionist tendencies and um, fear of failure. I love that. And the, when do you decide to transfer it from longhand to the computer? Did you write everything out longhand? You know, I, I wish it, I could tell you it was more methodical than it was, but but I would I would write tons and tons of pages longhand and then I would take a typing break and then type for a couple of days and then write another batch longhand and then take a typing break. But I didn't actually try to turn all those type pages into anything until about a year and a half later. Okay. So it's, it's kind of like the opposite of whatever people are doing in Scrivener, where there's like these organized buckets of text and you can keep track of all the drafts. Like this is just post-it notes and Microsoft Word documents. It is it is a very messy way of working. No, I really like it. And I because I feel like it gives you a lot, as you say, of freedom to not edit too soon. And the reason that I was wondering about the ending is because I feel like, especially for somebody coming to the novel, maybe ever. I think Russell Banks had talked about this too, of like, I have to, I have to know the ending first so that I know what I'm trying to work towards. And even if it changes, it doesn't matter if it changes, but you know, as long as there's something out there in the distant horizon that, you know, that's the point I'm trying to get to, it feels like it would help, you know, it feels like at least, you know, the scope of it, you can kind of lasso yourself, you know, in time around this is this is where I'm trying to go. So yeah, it's it's interesting to hear how much of this you knew at the outset and then how much of it you had to write and overwrite. And tell me a little bit about that overwriting because I'm just curious how, 
you you talked earlier in the interview about how many more mothers there were, and there's a good crop of mothers in the school for moms here. But knowing when it got, you know, kind of too overwhelming, the characters got too overwhelming. How much would you say had to get cut out of here from from everything that you wrote? Oh, in my my very first draft was a um, completely unmanageable size. It's it's all sitting in one gigantic plastic tub in my parents' basement. So so <laughs> that massive draft got cut down to about five hundred pages, and then from the five hundred pages, I rewrote that smaller blob into um, a, like actual chapter shape chapters. And that took years. But in terms of what got cut, so many hundreds of pages got cut in that process. And then once I was rewriting each chapter, I think it, it was hard to know, given the the setup of the world, that there would be a school with lessons. It was hard to know when to pull back. And that was something that I really worked on with my original editor, Don Davis, because we just had too many lessons. And when we were trying to sell the book, pretty much every editor I spoke to said, like, you, you've got to do something about the middle. <laughs> the middle really drags. And I, I will say that we did our very best. I'm not sure that the the finished result is perfect, but I don't think any books are perfect except for The Handmaid's Tale, which is actually a perfect book. But, <laughs> but I, I think one thing that I kept in mind was uh, advice from my friend Catherine Chung, the novelist, who said, you know, we write the book and we write it in the certain structure that we are able to do at, at that point in time. And I think because I was coming to novel writing from a short story writer's perspective, and as someone who who started using plot kind of later in life and in terms of my journey to, to writing and the skills I developed, I ended up writing a, such a linear book that it's almost retro in a way. Um, my chapters are fairly long. The time just moves forward. Uh, there's not that many flashbacks. I don't jump between perspectives. Those are techniques that I, I just simply don't know how to do. I mean, I'm not drawn toward those techniques, but also like I did the the structure and the way of maintaining momentum that I knew how to do at this point in time. I really like that you said that, that you're working within the wheelhouse of what you know. Somebody, some, uh, Ada Limon, the, the new poet laureate, I was just making that point the other night that you deal with the skills that you have at the time you have them. And I, I think there's some strange freedom in that. It kind of feels like a, a sense of, okay, you know, what, 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 we, what do we have in our toolbox and what can we use to, to get through this? I like that. So your editor is helping you set up sort of the, the rules for this dystopian world. Cause we should say it's set. I mean, I kind of got the impression it was set kind of in the 2030s, you know. Oh, this is that's the most specific guess I've heard. So maybe I'll just (laughs) go with that. I was thinking like 10 years from now, because there are some references to now, but it's, you know, it's certainly in the future, but it doesn't feel like it's that far into the future. So I was like, okay, I could see the world getting kind of here in 10 to 15 years. But there's still a lot of differences that you have to set up, but you don't want to be, you know, preachy about it. So tell me if your editor had suggestions or concrete ideas for you to follow in in setting up this this dystopian world and and how you tell readers enough what's going on to make us follow along. You know, I th- I think I really appreciated um, that Don and also my agent Meredith, they were willing to go with um, a more minimalist type of world building because I was certainly interested in the world building along the lines of uh, Kazuo Ishiguro's novel, Never Let Me Go, where it's just sort of delivered to the reader as as just part of the story rather than here are the rules. 
So I was interested in in having hints to the reader throughout of of what kind of world and what kind of technology we have and how much in the future is it. But I guess I never wanted it to be obvious. I didn't want it to feel like here's the here's the clue I'm handing you and now we can go back to the plot. So I I wanted it to be to be integrated and I really really wanted to do as little world building as possible so that readers could bring their imaginations to the story and the characters and and fill in the, the gaps. I think that with a lot of contemporary fiction, I think one thing that that frustrates me is that readers aren't trusted more to figure things out. Like I, I really didn't want to give readers all the answers. I wanted to to raise questions and and give them just enough of a hint that they could take the rest and um, build on it themselves. Just one random aside: Have you seen there are now these actual babies? They're they're infants and they look absolutely real. My daughter was just showing me these, these real babies. I was thinking about that when I was reading this. I'm like, oh my God, it's already happening. There are these babies that look, you would never be able to tell the difference between an actual baby and the way they move their faces and everything. I'm like, oh my God, the future is here. It's coming. You know, one of my readers, um, I mean, as much as I have a tortured relationship with social media, um, there are some really amazing moments, especially in terms of connecting with readers. Someone sent me a video from Japan, I think of these child robots who are being used to train dentists how to accommodate children and deal with pain or if the, the children um, started freaking out. So I, one, one, I will say that one thing that was hard with, with writing a, a book set slightly in the future with technology that doesn't quite exist yet is to finish the book before the technology actually exists. Right. Yeah, that actually raises another question, because I always kind of enjoy talking to writers after a book has been out for a while. We usually do the interviews, you know, as books are coming out. But now that this is coming out in paperback and it's been out a year, I'm curious, A, the surprising or feedback that's, you know, been interesting to you from readers over the past year, as well as how you feel about it. Because I feel like books are, you know, not to not to uh, be too on the nose here, but books are, you know, a bit like bearing a child. And at some point, they're out in the world and they're living their own lives without you. And, you know, they are who they are. And and I'm wondering if you kind of have that sense of that about this book that it's, you know, it's taking on a life of its own. You know, I've totally called this my book baby for the last decade. I mean, I I started the book so long ago now, and it's just been part of my life through so much of my 30s and 40s. And I, I mean, I will say that I I mean, I've had a hard time letting go. Like I didn't move the the files on my computer desktop that like all the drafts, I didn't move them off my desktop until September of 2022 after the book had been already been out for eight or nine months. I just needed to make the mental leap that, okay, the book is done now. I can't tinker with it anymore. So I have a hard time with things like that. But I will say one of the most surprising things about the book and making its way in the world, um, besides like the fact that it's been read by Barack Obama, which is the craziest yes. thing. And I don't think any of it has that has really sunk in yet. That was completely surreal. But also, I th- I think there's a professor. So there's a, there is, a, I will not say I think there is a professor at the College of William and Mary who designed a course or like inspired by my book about bad mothers in literature. And that's something that maybe I dreamed of in secret part of my brain, but I I didn't expect it to come to fruition. And so that's been really exciting to hear about. And 
another rewarding, really, really rewarding development that is, again, beyond my dreams for what the book would be in the world was to, to land on the reading list for the National Coalition for Child Protection Reform and to be read by sociologists and lawyers and activists working in this space. And I guess I I was very heartened to hear that they felt that I captured some of the experience of, of parents whose children have been taken away. And I think that's one thing that hasn't been part of the conversations as much when I was promoting the book last year, um, partly because I, I'm very careful to not speak out of turn since I, I'm not a subject matter expert. I'm just writing fiction. But I, I definitely did want in some way for my my book to draw attention to to that issue and for more people to want to learn about it. So I was glad to hear that the people working on reforming this very broken system um, were interested in, in what my book can do in terms of raising awareness. I mean, it really touched on something so visceral as you, you know, read the comments on Goodreads or the comments elsewhere. Oh, I, I haven't you know, read those. It just touched on something so visceral, I think, for women, some men too. But, you know, I mean, <laughs> as I mentioned in the introduction, women are either so shamed all the time by society and whatever choices they make, or they're afraid, you know, every decision they make is under the microscope. And so, you know, women had such strong reactions just of their own experiences. And so I think it's important to tap into these things. So it gives you kind of a basis of which to talk about it. I mean, that's kind of more of a book club question than a than a writing craft question. But I don't know if this if you feel like this has sort of informed your your own mothering and the aftermath of it, but it sure gave language to all of the fears, primal fears I think we all carry around as as women and as mothers. And uh, what a service that was in addition to bringing light to this this issue that I wasn't aware of was such a such a big issue in our country. It's that adds another level of terror. Right. I I think the rather than um, me speaking on it, because I, I certainly I don't have all the statistics on my fingertips. Um, I just read the book Torn Apart by the the legal scholar Dorothy Roberts. And I think if there is one thing I would do over in terms of my book research, I wish I had known about Dorothy Roberts' work and read all of her books while I was uh, researching my novel. But I, it's never too late to learn things, even after your book comes out. So that's the 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 perfect nonfiction companion read um, to the School for Good Mothers. And and that's where I think people can can learn a lot about what's happening with the child welfare system in this country. But I'm I'm so happy to hear that the book gave language and an occasion for for women to to feel the more complicated feelings about motherhood and about mothering in America. We'll be right back with more from Jessamine Chan and the School for Good Mothers in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick nudge to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show and you've learned any tips that may have inched you closer to publication, or if you like these behind-the-scenes discussions of how these books get made, this is your chance to support the show. By becoming a backer for just a few bucks a month, you'll get weekly writing tips and prompts and a few other goodies. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Jessamine Chan and the School for Good Mothers. 
So tell me a little bit about finding, I mean, it sounds like the voice was there from the very beginning, and I'm sure point of view is encompassed in the voice. But tell me about that third person choice, because we do feel very close to Frida. We really feel like we're in her body and in her brain. And I was wondering if you ever grappled with, I find first person really very difficult, but I was wondering if you have that tried that out at any point and settling on third person. Talk about that. You know, this this is very nerding out. Kind of, um, and this this is like going down like the um, writing craft uh, rabbit hole, which I'm assuming is okay to do on your podcast. Yes, please do. But yes. I find first person really hard because it's hard to make people do things. Like I I really like what first person can do in terms of freeing up voice and emotion, but I find it hard to like make someone go across the room or open a door or leave the building. Like just like at the actual action I find um really clunky in first person. One thing that I that I have done not with this project but with with uh short stories in the past is sometimes I would shift between first and third for different drafts just because if I needed to make the characters move around more, I would make put everything in third. And then if I needed to get closer to them emotionally, I would put everything in first and just go back and forth, which I, I have been told is also um, not the way people usually work. But it, it's something that has worked for me. That's interesting. And, you know, I have never kind of given language to why I find first person difficult. I've always kind of called it claustrophobic or you know, I get bored with one person, so I want to switch points of view to somebody else. Or, you know, it's so restrictive that you have to stay with the same, in the same person's head. But that idea of like physically being (laughs) unable to move them around the room or open the refrigerator is a, that's such a good point. I hadn't even really focused on that. I have to think about that more, but that, that strikes me as true. So I, I think it's an issue for me because if it was up to me, my characters would just never do anything. They would just never <laughs> say anything, never do anything. There'd be no plot whatsoever. Like that's my happy place is to just write a character thinking just into infinity, like 50 pages of thinking. And so to force myself to have action, I, I have to work in third person. And like my um, my grad school professor David E. Bershoff said, you you build a story by making the characters act and speak. So I so when I when I get stuck, I try to remember to keep everyone acting and speaking to like keep the story moving forward um, and have them interacting because I it's very, very easy for me to fall back into just endless plotless thinking and playing with pretty sentences, which is a fine way to write, but it is it's hard to for me to build a novel that way. It's so funny you should say that because this novel is so plot, it feels to me, you know, very plot driven and there's so much action. So it's funny for me to hear you say that you struggled with that because you really, you really overcame it. I mean, this was, you know, definitely like what is going to happen next and what is she going to go through next? And there was, there was a lot of action. So maybe in the, in the attempt to overcorrect, you, you know, just landed just right. But, but. Oh, uh, that's very kind of you to say. It's funny. So ta- let's talk a little bit about, because we've mentioned that there is, you know, a pretty good cast of minor characters. And let's let's kind of dissect some of these characters who gave you difficulty writing, as you mentioned, dialogue from, you know, kind of an 18-month-old perspective is tricky. But let's talk about some of the characters who may have given you the most trouble and kind of how you unlocked the key to who they were and, and understood them. 
You know, Gust and Susanna, I will say, were really fun to write. I mean, Susanna was really fun to write. I could have written another 500 pages just about Susanna. The the children were hard just because it's hard to get their language and mobility and life skills correct. But what happened was that I was taking quite so long revising this book that my daughter was born and then she grew up. And around the time that I was writing the toddler sections, she was a toddler. So I was kind of writing the book alongside her development and like stealing tons of toddler dialogue from her and her friends and watching how she behaved. So I had these very strange days where I would spend most of the day working on my quite dark book and then spend the afternoon at the playground with a bunch of toddlers. So so it made for a good life balance, but it also was was research in a way. I think the most challenging characters to write was to do justice to all the the moms and have them be able to be standalone characters and memorable and distinct. So that's something I worked on a lot with my editor, Don Davis, in terms of building out their backstories, developing their relationships with Frida, uh, giving them a reason to be in the, in the book, and then advancing their own individual stories. Is that where a lot of the overwriting took place? Because it strikes me that, you know, I could go down a rabbit hole with any minor character and get to know them a little too, (laughs) a little too well. And I was wondering if that was where a lot of the cutting had to happen. If you, you know, kind of spent too much time with one person or got derailed by them, or apparently at some point you had way too many women. Is that, was that kind of the, the overwriting part? You know, I think a lot of the overwriting happened before we even sold the book. Like I, th- I think I did a lot of the overwriting and editing on my own. And then once I was working with Dawn, I, I had to make much more precise decisions because I had actual deadlines to meet. So I think that that kept me on task. I love a deadline. There's nothing that'll make you write faster than a deadline. And tell me a little bit about... I love the names in here, and they're kind of unconventional names. And we don't often talk about naming characters, but the names have to be right, you know, They and they have to be, as you say, memorable, especially for a big cast of characters. So tell me a little bit about choosing the names, knowing when you settled on the right ones. It sounds like you had a lot of them on that kind of very first great writing day, but yeah, talk a little bit about that. You know, I feel very guilty admitting this, but actually I stole a lot of names from my husband's friends. <laughs> and <laughs> my my husband has a, a friend named Gust and we we did not consult him that this would be the name of one of the the characters in the book because there's no actual relationship between the characters and like there's no overlap between real life Gust and Gust in the book. But I just thought he had the coolest name and like what a great character name. So Harriet is actually the name of my my mother-in-law and like my husband also has a friend named Tucker who I don't know if he's read the book, but again, no relationship. I just liked the name Tucker. So sometimes you work with just what's percolating in your brain. I love the name Frida. I guess as as someone who's whose name has a very strange spelling, I'm I'm really interested in naming characters. So so I my characters, especially the main characters, tend to have very simple names like Jane or or Judy or something like that. Like just just very simple, short, easy names. So I like playing with that. I, d- I actually don't know where Emmanuel came from. That's yeah, one of those that things where where your your brain produces it and sometimes it's just better not to question it and to go forward. Yeah, because I was thinking you really had to come up with, I mean, you because you have the school and you have all the mothers in the school and then you have their children. Um, 
Don't there were so many away. names. There's so many names. Yeah, there's so many names. I was like, so so that's another thing that I like to talk to writers about is kind of what their office space looks like because you have this pile, you know, you have all of these minor characters. I didn't do my homework well enough to kind of count them up, but oh, don't no need. It's a big cast. Yeah, it's a big cast. And so, tell me a little bit about. It sounds like everything was in these word documents and post-it notes, but kind of keeping everything straight, kind of keeping the timeline straight, you know, do, are you one of those people who kind of pins up things all over your office and pins up pictures of what the school might look like? Or tell me a little bit about that. That's one thing that changed in working with my agent, Meredith Kefel simonoff who's a genius in so many ways, but she, she gave me the, the very gentle but firm note right before we were going on submission. She said, you know, the setting details are a touch random. <laughs> And so at that point, I decided to go on some field trips to some liberal arts colleges near Philadelphia to just look at their campuses and what they might be like. And that actually opened up the book entirely. And it ended up going from this much more grim institution to a really beautiful campus, because that actually made it more ominous to have um, a big setting where the it could hold so many more mothers if as the years go on. So so that that ended up being a juxtaposition that really worked in revision. But in terms of pinning up index cards and photos, if I was a more organized person, I would love to work that way. I've seen it on Instagram and Facebook, the way people work with their uh, vision boards and their index cards. But I, I guess I have always just worked with my messy post-it notes and my stack of Word documents and sort of made my own little circular messes along the way and and sort of cleaned it up as I went. And I, I guess I have always wanted to be someone who could write from an outline, but the only outline that I had was very early in the drafting after I'd been working on the book for a couple months, I came up with the the curriculum for the school. So I developed the set of lessons and what they were trying to teach and what sequence they would be in. And what I found was that after I built that sequence of lessons, it was almost impossible to change it in the revision because I ended up um, inventing all the the plot points and the emotional arc of the characters around those lessons. So so that actually stayed from from the very early drafts. But again, this is the case of um, working with the skills you have at that at that particular point in your development as a writer. That's funny. Sort of a plot outline as a syllabus for a class. I like. Oh yeah, I kind of like that. Well, I see if. That actually kept me going because I could figure out like, okay, I've written the first sequence of lessons. I've written the second sequence of lessons. Okay, and now we're at this point in the year because the the ticking clock in the book is the year that Frida spends at the school. So, so I had a sense of what amount of time I was covering, but it definitely kept me on track. But it, it wasn't the case that I knew like, okay, we're at chapter three and like, this is what it's going to cover. I get the impression that writing would be much more orderly and efficient if I if I worked that way. But I think my brain just doesn't respond to outlines in that way. <laughs> well, that brings you back to the, your comment about how difficult middles are and how you had to kind of prop up the middle. But that's a good way to do it with these lesson plans. Here are the lessons they have to get through and the consequences, because each one of those was horrible, awful for these women and had consequences. And so it's funny that you say that the middle was kind of a quagmire for you because it really, to me, the pages kept turning in the middle because of all of these 
hurdles that they, you know, kept having to endure and, and the consequences that that put on them. So yeah, is that, was that really the sticking point for you was, was getting through the sort of that whole middle section? Well, getting through the middle section was really hard in the revision. But the other thing was that was hard was that um, my editor wanted me to add more warmth and humor. And I think I was about two weeks into working on her edits when the lockdown began. And so I was trying to like let loose creatively while feeling like the world is collapsing. And so I, I actually don't remember the that editing experience super clearly just because it was such a, a a pressured and anxious and scary time so so that block of months is a bit blurry to me the the middle was one sticking point and i think we we also cut about 40 pages from the version that i sold to the version that that made it into print so i think we were just we're trying, uh, as Dawn said, to make the book leaner and meaner um, because it, it kind of sagged in the center. And we were trying to have a book that was going to that was going to be a, a page turner. And I will say that one thing that I think helped that feeling was that I really liked to cut sections and chapter endings at a high point of tension. So I ended at a moment of suspense, and so that's something that I I tried to do throughout the book was that I. I didn't want to carry on the scene like a few beats too long into where people were expecting it to go. So some of the the major action takes place off the page. Trusting the reader again, which I think we don't do enough. Let's talk a little bit about find, sort of the logistics of finding an agent and selling the book. So remind me again when you got your MFA. Oh, I got my MFA a long time ago. Okay. I was at Columbia between 2008 and uh, 2011. And so I, I got my degree in um, 2012, but I, I was there quite a long time ago. Because I always wonder if that's sort of where people find their agents and they get their launch. But tell me a little bit about when you knew it was time to look for an agent, that process, and what you feel may have helped you. I can definitely say that there were no agents interested in me in grad school whatsoever. And I I don't even think that those grad school stories necessarily need to see the light of day. I mean, I, I did publish one story that the epic story was is something that I started in grad school. But a lot of those grad school stories were me just learning how to write fiction. And I, I'd never written a story with a plot or characters with, with dialogue or any of the sort of normal story things before getting to grad school. So I was I was learning a lot of new tricks while I was there. And it, it took me a while to actually like make good on that potential. But I think one thing that really helped in terms of learning about the writing world was uh, not just working at Publishers Weekly, but going to the Breadloaf conference several times. I was a waiter at Breadloaf in 2013 and then went back as a member of the social staff in 2014 and 2015. And I, I made some amazing friendships there. And I, I think the waiter program doesn't exist anymore, but we really bonded. And I, I really feel like I made some friends for life and also some friends who are going to be reading my drafts forever. That That's one connection that you can find in, in workshops or places like Breadloaf and other conferences. Like you meet some comrades who are going to be your, your people, like when you need a query letter read or what you need 
to trade full novel manuscripts with someone. Um, it's good to feel that someone's going to be in the trenches with you and to give you um, honest advice. So it was a, it was a very long journey between grad school finishing in 2011 and then signing with um, my agent Meredith in 2019. Do you feel like the MFA was worth it? Um, yes, I, I do feel like the MFA was worth it. Um, I studied with amazing professors at Columbia. Um, I had always, always, always wanted to live in New York. And um, Columbia was the opportunity to do that. I also uh, was teaching while I was there. So so that was a good way to to experience the classroom and to to learn those skills too. But I, I think equal to grad school was um, experience working in the publishing industry and also going to Breadloaf several times and um, meeting a lot of agents and editors there. So there were several several key stages of getting to know the lay of the land. And is Breadloaf where you met your agent? No, I actually, you know, by the time I was querying agents in 2019, several friends had already published their books. Some were on book two or book three. So I, I ended up querying about 13 different agents. And a lot of the introductions were were through friends. But I also queried probably five or six of those agents were just blind submissions. And Meredith was was a case where I just followed the directions on her page on her, her agency website regarding submissions. And I had no idea if she would even reply. And I just hit send and thought, well, here goes. So <laughs> so it, it that this is a case where I would say like, aim high, you never know how it's going to turn out. That's a success story because that's so, you know, when you when you get plucked out of the slush pile, people love to hear those stories that it's possible because I think a lot of people feel like it's impossible. Well, it it very much feels impossible. I mean, both of my uh, short stories that got published were from the slush pile and I didn't have an agent. And um, statistically, it's these numbers are very daunting for getting published from the slush pile or getting an agent through the slush pile. But I'm I'm here to I'm here to say it's not totally impossible. It, it sometimes happens. And tell me a little bit about some of the writing residencies that you've done. I think you've done Yado and some of those. Do you? Are, oh, are I've, you I've totally never gotten into Yado. Never. Gotten- <laughs> I, I I hope I hope to one day get into Yado and McDowell, but I've gotten rejected like like does like a dozen times from each I think but residencies have been a totally glorious experience I think what started me down the path of residencies is I got into Ragdale in 2007 before I went to grad school and that was only possible because it was a blind application and I got in just on my work like I had I had no writerly biography to speak of I was just working full time at the University of Chicago, I graduated undergrad so many years earlier. I had no writer, writerly bona fides. So, so the fact that some residencies do work from blind submissions is is really such an opportunity. Yeah, and do you feel like those are worth? Uh, obviously, you do feel like those are worth it for writers. Yes, I mean, if you if you can make the money and childcare work out and your ability to like pick up and leave your your home for a whole month, it's it's really the most beautiful experience. I I mean, I was very lucky cuz I also went to one really really long residency in Taos, which is the the residency at the Helene Wurlitzer Foundation and that's actually where I wrote the majority of the the first draft of my book and that one is 3 months which is is very very hard to do but I I think I we just moved to Philadelphia after my husband started grad school and so I I had the chance to 
to just pick up and go. And that that was a really, really special experience. So if any writers are interested in in residencies and are able to take that time away from their regular life, it's it's really so amazing to have time dedicated to just your to just your work where you're you don't have competing demands. It's it's really a luxury and it's it's wonderful. Especially now that you're a mom. Yeah, I mean that really impedes on the ability to get away for months at a time. I forgot to ask you if the if the school is based on a particular liberal arts school in Philadelphia or if it's sort of an amalgam of I mean there's so many there. Is it just kind of an amalgam of of a lot of liberal arts colleges there or is there one you had in mind? Oh, so Again, I feel a little guilty saying this out um, publicly, but I took a lot of the architecture from Swarthmore because the funny thing there is that my sister actually is a Swarthmore grad. And so I'd been to the campus a couple of times, but Swarthmore, I visited Haverford and Swarthmore and Swarthmore had a bell tower and I needed a bell tower for the plot. Yes. And so that was really helpful. But I think the thing that I also used was just the scale. I mean, Swarthmore has so many acres for so few people. And so the idea of the moms um, in this like rolling lush campus with um, multiple hiking trails and and just being in this place of woodland splendor actually made the story more ominous. It's so funny. I hope I'm not giving too much away to say that you made a, or, you know, the point was made in here that these now defunct liberal arts colleges over the past 10 years. I thought, that was... you know, everyone asked me about that, but that was written so many years ago. That that line was written um, way before the pandemic. So it was not meant as a as a dig at, at liberal arts colleges because it, it, it felt very far fetched when I wrote it. Isn't that funny? Back to your point that you have to write fast when you're writing dystopia now because it it catches up to you. I mean, Writers are such seers of the future, even when they don't think they are. It's always kind of crazy to me. So tell me if there's, as we draw down on our time, tell me if there's writing advice or wisdom that you would pass on now that you've, you're embarking on, I assume, a second novel now. Second novels are always tricky. But tell me a little bit about what you took away from all of this that you'll take into working on the next one. You know, I think I'm trying to get back to a really pure part of my brain that's not worried about the reception of whatever the next thing is and not worried about what the what critics will say or what the questions will be on social media um I feel like I'm trying to get my brain back actually after doing a lot of book promo and being um, on social media a lot like it's really changed my concentration and ability to focus so I'm I'm trying to to wrestle my my concentration back from from being highly distracted for a long time, like for a good cause. But now that I'm trying to write fiction again, I'm I'm trying to to learn how to immerse myself in in just the thinking and feeling and um nurture my imagination more. So I've I've actually been reading a lot. The book that I've been telling everyone to read in terms of like really freeing your mind is uh, the novel Pure Color by Sheila Hetty. It's just unlike any book I've ever read. And I've been finding that so inspiring. And I've been lately on a, a kick of reading Annie or No, and I'm very late to the game. I know everyone read her book books for years, but I'm catching up after she won the Nobel and also, also finding her work to be unlocking unlocking something creatively. I love that. Do you feel kind of done with this topic or do you feel pressure from your agent to stay in the same world or do you feel a lot of freedom to go wherever you want to go now? I actually don't know if I'm going to write 
more dystopian fiction. I mean, it's if it if an idea comes, that is something I'll I'll pursue. But I I've been lucky that I've I've told my um, agent editor that I'm just very slow and it's gonna be a while. And everyone has been uh, been very accommodating of that. I mean, I'm the snail is my spirit animal, so it's it's I'm never <laughs> gonna be. I, I don't think I'm ever going to be a writer who publishes a new book every two years. And so I think they're, they're mindful of the fact that it's going to be a while before I even come to them and say that I'm, I'm working on something, but I, yeah, I don't know if I want to keep working in this space. I think I, I've been trying to trick myself into thinking that to try to trick myself into that mental space of like, no one's going to read this. No one's going to care. I can just do whatever I want. Like that would be the ultimate goal for each time I sit down to work is I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. I don't feel any pressure. Yes. I mean, you really need that if you've got people, even if they're imaginary, imaginary people breathing down your neck. Ugh, that's 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 no way to work. Well, I mean, it's an amazing thing, though, because the impossible thing is to publish a book and have it read by people. So so that's that's amazing. It's a gift that that people are interested in what I do next. So I'm, I'm trying to 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 understand that gift and be grateful for it while also trying to get back to the, the to how I felt when I first started writing fiction when I was 18, when it felt like, oh, this is the coolest thing to do. I just need to have fun. Yeah, exactly. Well, tell us how we follow you. You have a website that um, that we'll certainly link to in the show notes, and it's got a lot of information up there. Are you going to do another tour now that the paperback is coming out where people can maybe follow you virtually? Yes, I well, I'm actually we haven't announced the virtual events yet because I think those are still being sorted out. But we are actually going on a um, pretty extensive in-person tour for the paperback. So I'll be going to uh, cities on the East Coast, cities in the South, um, some in the Northwest. And then I think we'll do the West Coast in April. But between um, February and April, there's about, I think, 10 bookstore events. And I have a website. I have a Twitter account that I barely post on. Um, I'm much more interesting on Instagram is is how I will put it. And I think we're going to be launched. We're posting the the virtual events probably in the next couple of weeks, but the in-person tour events are on my website. Fantastic. Okay. We'll link to all those in the show notes and, uh, and everybody can follow you there. Jessima Chan, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show and, and good luck to everyone who's listening and, and writing. That was Jessamine Chan. The book is The School for Good Mothers. It is out and available in paperback on February 7th and published by Simon & Schuster. In addition to our Patreon page, you can also visit our websites. Barbara's is barbarademarcobarrett.com or penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com, two R's in Marie. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week, and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.